so uh, good evening, everybody. Lovely to see you all here. Um, the beginning of this journey that we're embarking on, at least um, I'm certainly going to be embarking on, uh, a journey that's going to be taking us off perhaps into the unknown, the unknown reaches of the spiritual path uh, um, over this course of a couple of months, the uh, six t- talks I'm going to be giving and the practice evenings in the middle. Um, yeah, so tonight we're, we're sort of preparing to embark on our journey. Um, and I should say that the, the title of my talk tonight is Finding the Path. So it's the very, very early stages tonight. We're just uh, exploring the, the spiritual path and embarking on really finding it and beginning to uh, set out on it. Um, yeah, so in the next couple of months we'll be travelling together, a bit like we're the companions, travelling along the road of the spiritual path, exploring some of the sort of ordinary yet extraordinary uh, landscapes of the spiritual life from our vantage point on this path. And we're going to be following, uh, as you've heard, a very particular path, a teaching of Sangrachtas, the founder of our movement. Uh, and it's called The Five Great Stages of the Spiritual Path. Um, Sangrachta, we call him Bante as well, which is a bit shorter, and it means teacher. So it's, it's the, um, I might sort of lapse into either Bante or Sangrachta. It's the same person, if you're not familiar with, with that. So Bhante gave this teaching during a, a study seminar that he gave in 1976. And uh, he gave it, the study seminar, on a text by a great Buddhist teacher, I can't remember, the, maybe the 8th or 9th century, called Nagarjuna. And the text was The Precious Garland. It's called The Precious Garland. Um, and the, uh, the teaching he was giving apparently came from a traditional background, which uh, I won't be going into in tonight's talk, really, but I'll just mention the name of it, and we'll come back to that in other talks later on to sort of look at how the two teachings compare. Uh, This traditional teaching is called the Five Paths of the Yogacara, and it came from sort of medieval Buddhism, really, in India in the 8th or 9th century. So uh, it's a very sort of principial, fundamental teaching that's carried right through, and you find it in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, probably in many forms of Buddhism these days. Um, this is all a bit introductory, just sort of setting the scene. Uh, and the, these five great stages of the spiritual path, this particular teaching, uh, is the, seems to be the forerunner of uh, a more well-known teaching, I think, in our movement called the System of Meditation, uh, which Bhante actually gave two years later. And it seems like this teaching uh, that I'm going to be talking about um, Perhaps it was some of his early thinking from which this system of meditation um, arose. Anyway, for those of you who know nothing about the system of meditation, that won't be very interesting, but uh, um, maybe you might hear of it later and you'll put things together. And Again, I'll say a bit more about that as as the weeks go on, probably. Um, Yeah... Yes, so many of the Buddhist teachings, which um, I think some of you will have come across more than others, but often they come to us in the form of some sort of list, a list of different practices to be done in a certain order, um, which will you know, have a particular effect as we practice them. Um, uh, but this, this particular teaching is a bit different. Uh, it's more to do with the, the sort of stages of our personal spiritual development and the stages that that goes through in the course of our spiritual life. 
So it's that's it's very interesting teaching actually because it's um it's one which in which we can begin to get a sense of um, how you know the sort of um, states we need to progress through in order to develop on the spiritual path. So it's a sort of blueprint or a bit of a map. It is a bit of a uh, has got a that sense of a a path um, within a a context um, because it's by recognising the sort of stage that we're on in this path, we can then get a sense of what we need to do as our, our, in our next phase of practice, what we need to do next. And uh, often that's quite crucial to us when we're practising the Dharma, practising the spiritual path, um, is, uh, is really knowing what, what the appropriate practices are to do at that stage for us. Yes, yeah, so I'll come back to what the, those five stages are a bit later a bit later in the talk but basically they just to give a bit of a sense they the first stage uh, begins with us in a sort of the um, basic sort of unintegrated rather unmindful normally us that sort of comes along to our first uh, Buddhism course and maybe continues rather like that for the next few years so the the general sort of stage of ordinary human life when we're um, just getting to know ourselves really and that takes, that's the very first stage of the path and it gradually becomes, we become more integrated, more concentrated, more positive, um, moving towards um, a stage where we're you know, strong enough, integrated enough to get a sense, see more directly into the nature of existence. And then there are two more stages after that uh, in which we are transformed by that insight and we actually become... Uh, eventually, in the, the very last stage, a sort of manifestation of spontaneous, compassionate activity, which is sort of another way of looking at Buddhahood. So this, these five stages span the whole course of the spiritual life from here right to uh, enlightenment. So as, as uh, Daimala was saying, there's going to be six talks. So I'm going to give six talks over the, this phase. And... I'm going to give one talk on each of these five stages. So after tonight's overview talk, um, I'll be able to focus much more in more detail and uh, sort of draw out the nature of each of these stages for us. And we'll have lots of time to um, sort of dwell in the particular landscape. I sort of got this sort of path feeling, which I'm, you know, sort of bringing out with a. It felt like a sort of path that goes through our lives and each stage is a bit like, at one point I was thinking it's a bit like a clearing in a forest or a, I don't know, a particular plateau or a particular type of landscape that we go through which we can uh, yeah, sort of get to know as we go on in, on these talks. So yeah, tonight I'm going to be giving a bit of an overview then of this path but before that I want to talk a little bit about uh, what it's like to find a path uh, itself, just the, the, the whole area of being on a path. Um, yeah, but firstly, a bit more of an introduction. Yes, yeah, so uh, Sangharachta Banti, he was saying that he was he came up with this teaching, or he offered this teaching of the five great stages of the spiritual path as a, a sort of down-to-earth and practical teaching that we could bring to mind uh, when we felt a bit unsure of our step or lost on the path. And one of the things he was reflecting on was, um, in a way, there's so many different practices. The more you come to know Buddhism and the more you read about it, 
you really begin to see how, much op- how many options there are really, how many different teachings there are, how many different practices that we could be doing. And it can become a bit confusing and be- bewildering. Um, and so this teaching offers a sort of pr- principial look, sort of a bit underneath the surface, on how to, um, how to decide from ourselves what the best way forward is. Uh, it's a bit like we're... I've had another image of... Uh, this sort of walking along the path. We're walking along a path, maybe in some woods. How it is you're enjoying your path, and you're just walking along, and suddenly it forks into two, and they both look almost exactly the same, and you're sort of not quite sure which way to go, are you, when, when this sort of thing happens. And it can be a bit like that with the spiritual life. You've, suddenly something else opens up, and you're not quite sure uh, which one to take. And another image I had was, you know how it is also when you're walking through the forest and suddenly it's, um, the, the path seems to sort of peter out. It's a bit like it becomes an animal track and goes under these branches and bushes and <laughs> before you know it, you're sort of crawling along through these brambles and uh, I had a very strong experience like that on a solitary retreat last year in Spain and ended up walking into this wild boar's den virtually mm-hmm. underneath these uh, mountains. Yes, so I think the spiritual life can be a bit like that, actually. You're sort of dragging yourself under a hedge, thinking, surely this can't be what they meant <laughs> me to be doing. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and that brought to mind a saying of Bantis. He said something like, um, the way is a hacked path through dense jungle. And so maybe it, is meant, maybe it is like that sometimes, that we actually have to sort of hack our way through to find our path. It isn't always straightforward. So, you know, if, if you're fairly new to practice of the Dharma and you're beginning to find it a bit complicated, not, don't worry, because maybe it is. So that's a, it's not you. It may not be you. It might just be the nature of, uh, you know, the early stages of actually sort of orienting ourselves on this, on this path. <coughs> yeah, so... so um, I think part of, part of this can be the difficulty that is because, well, when you read about a practice in a book, say, or when you first learn about it, it can seem very, very straightforward, but actually to put it into practice doesn't seem to be quite as easy. Even the idea of practicing, say, non-violence and ethics, which seems very obvious and important, and, and when we, you know, we try to put it into practice and we come against these enormous resistances in ourselves and stumbling blocks and... Uh, yeah, we, we sort of we can get quite doubtful at those times. Or we can sort of feel a bit you know, a bit lost quite easily. And and I was actually reflecting also this may or may not be encouraging, but uh, that um in a way feeling lost is part of the territory as well, actually. Because in a way, in essence, with the spiritual life we're sort of going into the unknown. We're actually deliberately going into the unknown. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to sort of let go of our habitual, fixed ways of operating and our fixed, you know, the, the more negative uh, reactions that we sometimes have. Um, yes, I think the spiritual life is is uh, constantly taking us out of our comfort zone. I think Banty did say something once, something like, well, if you don't experience yourself hanging up, like you're hanging upside down from a cliff edge by your fingernails, you're not really practicing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hardly ever feel that, actually. So, but anyway, <laughs> but I have the occasional glimpse, and I think, oh, right, perhaps things aren't so bad after all. 
Yeah. Yes, so because with the spiritual life, in essence, we are trying to make some radical transformation, aren't we, in um, to that sort of uh, habitual sort of ego-grasping um, way that we have of... Well, there's the sort of self-centeredness, which uh, we don't mean to be self-centered and egoistic, most of us, most of the time, do we? But it just sort of comes through because underneath the surface, the ego does rule. Uh, so with the spiritual life, we're, we're trying to sort of become aware of that and undercut that a bit. And it is very unknown territory. Somebody uh, said, you can't go into the unknown in a known way. Yeah, you can't go into the unknown in a known way. So we, we need all the help we can get, all the sort of tips that we can get to sort of help us recognize points in the path and signposts. Uh, like a sort of spiritual sat-nav, I was thinking. Perhaps with a nice voice. Now you need to do the mindfulness of breathing. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> but, I, but I thought more it would be nice to have a more mythic image, so I came up with this image of the lodestone, this sort of lodestone, which is... Um, I looked it up in the dictionary. The lodestone is a, a, mag- a piece of stone made of magnetic ore. And... Uh, it becomes a, a natural magnet, a, mag- a compass. So if you can sort of get a small piece of it, I guess, and sort of hang it up, it will sort of orient, it, orient itself towards the north. Apparently that's what sailors used to use uh, and navigators, this sort of lodestone. And the good thing about it is it doesn't matter where you are, it'll always do that. So you've got this, you've got this piece of lodestone. You can be in a dark forest, you've got these two paths, and you'll hold, hold your lodestone up, and it will sort of swing towards one, and off you go. Yeah. So teachings, Dharma teachings, can be a lodestone. They can be an orientation for us. So I think that's what uh, Bounty's been offering us with this teaching, is a, a sort of lodestone, a way of orienting. So uh, yeah, I just wanted, in the next stage of the talk, to... Uh, encourage us all just to sort of maybe drop down into our sense our own sense of our own personal path the sort of the sense we have uh, of being on a path we may have or we may, may or may not relate to that topic but um, that sense of a path but it could be like a sense of an inner quest or uh, maybe a yearning for something uh, because I was thinking in a sense there isn't in a way there's no path outside ourselves there is a there is a teaching but the real path is ourselves. We are the path. It's us in our spiritual unfoldment that is the path. And um, in a book called Living with Awareness, uh, Bhante talks of how we all have a sort of current in our being, an urge towards spiritual unfoldment, uh, an inner direction. And he says it may be more or less conscious, maybe largely unconscious. He says, you might not realise the path your life is taking until you look back on it. But when you do become aware of your purpose, it might seem uncannily as though your life has had a direction of its own, independent of your conscious volition. But when you become aware of your higher purpose, however much you kick against it, you will never be entirely able to forget it. And we should do whatever we can to dwell upon it, uh, intensify our experience of it, and allow it to permeate and transform us. Um, yeah, so I think I think it's a... We need a certain sort of little bit of stillness, don't we, about ourselves, and uh, just to sort of receive that in our, and uh, to know that in ourselves, that sort of sense of 
maybe there's a Taravand and I described it a few weeks ago in a talk here about the, the feeling of a river, an underground river in her being, a sort of sense of flow and uh, that uh, yeah, sometimes I feel as though yeah, something's sort of taking you along. So there's something in us that knows what it's doing. That's another way I was thinking, <laughs> Irrespect, you know, despite ourselves, despite our conscious minds. So however sort of foreign and strange sometimes some of the practices might seem, uh, it, it seems as though something is drawing us and attracting us to the path, to the spiritual path. So in, in thinking about this talk, I was reflecting quite a bit, well, it made me think about my early life, my childhood, and uh, in a way how important it feels uh, to have found a path for me. And I spent a lot of my childhood... I think one of the main experiences of it was feeling lost, actually, and feeling very confused. I don't know if that is the case for everybody. Um, but I, uh, when I was thinking about it, writing this talk, I realised that I thought maybe it's a normal part of childhood in a way because we're sort of living our parents' lives and then we're living the lives of the culture around us and often it's not really explained to us what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I, I think it was one of the main difficulties, or, or painful experiences of childhood for me, was not knowing why I was doing things or where it was all leading at all. And I think it must have been quite a strong thing for me because I had a, uh, a memory that keeps coming back. Is that I had this um, book. I think I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was about eight years old, and it was a very simple storybook. And in it, there was a little boy and girl who were they were somehow lost, or the, I'm not sure what happened in their lives. But um, they, were on a, they were going on a quest to find a wise man who lived in some mountains or in a forest, I think it was. And they set out, uh, they, I think they got some vague directions, but quite soon they got lost. They were walking through the forest. And then they saw a big bird in a tree and they asked the bird where to go. And the bird sort of said, oh, this way and then that way. So they went along that way. And then they found another bird who told them another bit of directions and another animal. And eventually um, they found this wise being, this wise man in the mountains, who I can't remember what he said, or, but the impression it made on me was quite enormous, actually, that there was some wisdom in the world. It was, it was such a strong thing, and it sort of stayed, I remember the sense of relief that I felt, that there was the thing that might make sense on some level somewhere. Um, and that sort of held something for me for quite a while. Um, but I also remember as... Well, I forgot about it uh, through my adolescence, and things got, you know, complex and confusing in other ways. And, you know, I ended up getting disillusioned in a sense, or disappointed by things, and um, sort of losing touch with all of with that sort of possi- those possibilities. Um, you know, I got on with life as one does, and went to college, and settled down, and got a job, and um, and I. Yeah, I saw myself, in a, way, in a way, turning away from the possibility of truth as well and not really feeling very inauthentic because I wasn't really going for it. I sort of had the sense that there might be something, but I kept not bothering, you know, sort of kept not sort of following up on possibilities. And I remember at college I smoked a lot of dope and uh, just you know, got into my college work and um, sort of hid from myself in a certain sort of way, felt very inauthentic. Uh, yeah, my friends around me, that I had a, I think I was with people, there was this sense in, it was like the 70s, and people were wanting to change the world. 
and there was a lot of conversations about how to do that and what was possible, but there was no method. You know, there wasn't anybody who... It wasn't, there wasn't a creative sense to it. It was more destructive, really. It was more cynical. Uh, so I remember I, I didn't feel right with that, but I didn't have any alternative. So I remember feeling very, very stuck and sort of... I remember sort of pretending that I was okay with it. And it's really awful, isn't it, where you f- remember your inauthenticity. Uh, and I remember fe- yeah, feeling very inauthentic and... Uh, quite a painful place to be and I think I was bored a lot of the time actually sort of bored and hiding from myself and I wouldn't have gone to a meditation class if I'd known what it was Uh, it should have a health warning shouldn't it if I knew that I'd have to sit there and become aware of myself uh, in meditation I probably wouldn't have gone but as it was I found myself doing that and I thought oh it's okay Uh, you know so I was beginning to find myself and I think I've always um, I was saying I'm, you know, I love meditation, and that is partly for that reason. I think because I, in a sense, I found myself through that and felt it was okay to be with myself, which is the greatest gift you can really receive, isn't it? To have that gift given to you. But uh, luckily, I stumbled upon it, and because um, I probably would have been too fearful to, to do it because I, did, I didn't like myself. You know, this is all rather personal, but it sort of it, maybe it sort of um, what I'm coming to through that is. Um, when I found the, what the nature of the Dharma, the path of the Dharma was, I was very, very grateful to that because it was a path where you could, um, the nature of that path was, uh, was authenticity, that the way to the truth was being authentic with yourself. And that was the most amazing gift that you can receive, isn't it? To, to know that you haven't got to believe anything. Nothing, there's nothing forced or artificial about the Dharma um, the, the, we are, the path is our, ourselves it is our own personal unfoldment um, and it's we haven't got to be anything in fact we're, we become more and more ourselves through that path um, yeah so such a relief to find a path like that and I thought well authenticity as a path it's so radical isn't it absolutely amazing and I think it's really important I've, I try to keep that sense in myself as I practice the Dharma and um or even deepen that sense, because it's so easy to sort of go to sleep again and get stuck in some sort of rut of, this is what we do, this is what we practice, but trying to sort of get below the surface and be authentic with the practices and um, find our own path within each practice. Um, And I was thinking, uh, perhaps this is what makes search for wisdom possible within Buddhism, because... Uh, it allows the deepest urges of our soul. I was thinking it's rather poetic use of the word soul because Buddhism doesn't really believe in souls, but it allows this sort of deepest urge of our souls to lead the way in our spiritual life. Um, our urge for truth and our urge for authenticity are what we need, and they're very, very powerful. Uh, they're very, um, we, yeah. There's a lot of love that can come be, un- be released through that, and a lot, a lot of emotion. So this uh, the one's river, my river of the inner path, it can sort of coincide with the Dharma. So I think, I think uh, we, in this sort of way we can come to uh, recognise recognize the path that we're on through that sense that it is true to our own nature. Uh, it feels right. So there's a bit of a lodestone there, the, the authenticity, quality, 
is a bit of a lodestone for us in finding, uh, recognising our own path. I think people, people talk about feeling at home, coming home. Sometimes I'm not sure if any of you have felt that. There's been, sometimes people say they come to a Buddhist centre or they encounter some of the practices and it feels right, it feels natural, they feel at home. I think that's part of the same quality. Uh, it, sort of, it, it draws out what's real in us um, and, and sort of encourages it. However, as I was saying earlier, well, it may not be very comfortable, this whole process. And that's important to acknowledge, isn't it? Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that anything's wrong uh, when it's uncomfortable. Um, although it might feel it, yeah. Because we're, we're going into these weird areas of getting to know ourselves and, and the world. Um, actually, I, I, Malo was saying I, I'd, I'd, uh, went, I moved to Taraloka straight after I was ordained and it was a very pioneering situation at that point in Shropshire, a very new retreat centre. And we were sort of converting everything at once and there weren't very many facilities to speak of. Lots of puddles and piles of building materials and not very comfortable at all. And I didn't know anybody. I'd sort of moved there. I can be quite idealistic. And I'd, I decided to move there because I was really inspired by the project and helping it set up. And it didn't occur to me to think, uh, did I know anybody there or... Was I going to enjoy it? And I just assumed I, I would. And then I got there and I found I was immensely lonely. You know, I, was really, I didn't really know people. And people were very sort of gung-ho pioneering types who seemed to sort of just throw themselves into their work and didn't really need to talk to anybody. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit like that to start with. Um, so I, um, yeah, and then a friend came to stay uh, after a few months. And I remember her saying to me, well, are you happy here? And I thought, well, actually, um, in a way, I'm really miserable in some ways. Uh, very lonely, but then I thought again, and I thought actually i 'm really really happy I, was, I, I felt happy very, very deeply because uh, I was in a place where I was being encouraged to be uh, who I was, and nobody was wanting me to be different to how I was or who I was. There was this sort of encouragement to be I felt very free, so there 's this happiness, real happiness, but also sort of from the ordinary worldly sense, probably people would have thought I wasn't very happy sort of working on this building site and with people I didn't really know and, you know, that sort of thing. Yes. So, yes. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think these are things we can, we can sort of keep on coming back to, this sense of uh, inner, maybe an inner knowing that we're, we're sort of beginning to uh, find a way forward that feels right for us. It feels real. Um, it brings a breath of fresh air into our lives. You know, it's a, even though it might be a little bit sore and painful at times, we feel as you know, that expanding the heart process isn't very easy either. Is it sort of it sort of cracks open sometimes? And a bit difficult. So we're we're allowing ourselves to do that. And but, but, uh, Sangracha has said we that um, we can develop what's called an inner guru, an inner a voice, an inner inner teacher who can actually be our guide. And I think it's through the sort of stronger development of this intuition that I'm talking about, this sort of feeling that's what's right, that we actually we get to the point where we can guide our own practice quite um, effectively. So I'm going to read a, a poem by uh, Mary Oliver about the path. It's a, it's a, path about, a poem about um, finding our way on the path. It's called The Journey. 
She says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and you began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend your life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their, mel- though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognised as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. It's a very powerful glimpse of uh, somebody sort of doing what's right, striving forwards. So I'm going to uh, move on now to introduce us to these five great stages of the spiritual path. You're probably beginning to wonder when we're ever going to get to those, or maybe you weren't, but uh, uh, these five great stages... So what's the essence of this uh, path that we're embarking on? So I thought, well to, well, to get a sense of the path, we just need a brief, a brief glimpse at the goal, at our goal. Um, so perhaps we've got a sense of this uh, distant, alluring peak, uh, beautiful in the dawn light, uh, caught up in the clouds maybe. There's this sort of pinkish dawn clouds across the peak, obscuring it slightly. It's sort of disappearing and then it's reappearing. Um, well, what, uh, well uh, what is our sense? That's something just to reflect on is what is our own sense of our goal? Uh, do we have an image for that ourselves, a, a sense of where we're going? Um, is it like the end of a journey or is it the beginning of a journey? Um, hmm. Yeah, sort of where, where are we going? So that's maybe something we could, we could just reflect on as well. I think having a bit of a sense of where we're going. So maybe it's put in words, uh, something we're orienting towards, a search for meaning or a search for truth or a search for peace. Uh, perhaps we're inspired by the possibility of becoming spontaneously compassionate or wise. Those sort of qualities that sort of draw us in. But whatever, in a way, whatever the uh, feeling for the goal that we do have, much of our practice of the Dharma is geared towards helping us to see the world as it really is. And everything unfolds from that, from there. That's sort of the heart of the transformation that we're embarking on. Sort of accepting how things are, not wanting things to be other than they are. Sort of learning to, we need to learn to sort of slow down, open our eyes, our ears, our heart. Um, so that we can actually receive experience without trying to change it or control it. I think uh, everything sort of comes from there. And all, in a way, all Buddhist practices are trying to uh, help us to unfold in that sort of way. Yep. 
And Bhante said the, there are two main principles at the heart of uh, spiritual change, which he calls the principle of vision and the principle of transformation. Uh, in fact, he's written a, written a book called Vision and Transformation, uh, in which he says, this is what it means to evolve spiritually. It means to achieve perfect vision by one means or another, and then to transform our whole being in accordance with that vision. So that's a sort of very, it's, that's all we're doing really. That's a very straightforward way of uh, looking at a spiritual life. And that's the essence of these five stages of the path, these, quali- these two um, principles of vision and transformation. Have a bit of water. So I think that's what that this quality of vision. Um, when we really see something, or we uh, using it as vision in terms of understanding as well, we sort of when we really see something and know something, and we know it really deeply, that's when we're changed by it. So I think that's why this quality of vision is so important. If we sort of see through the nature of reality, then we are really changed. Um, our outlook on the world and ourselves is changed, and that's where transformation really happens. It's from really seeing the truth in something in a way it's becoming authentic with with reality isn't it we sort of become our insight and so when it comes to these um the five great stages of the path there's the the first three stages are really all about cultivating this stage of vision and the second the the last two stages are all around transformation so that's really why i'm embarking on telling you about that sort of those principles so the fir- these first five, the, f- the five stages. Actually, I, w- I had hoped to come up with a little handout, actually, with all of this. But uh, I've, I was going to say I've um, got most of this talk typed out. So I'm going to see if there's a way of putting it on the um, website, because then it will be more available for in more detail. So the first stage is this stage of integration uh, through awareness and mindfulness. I'm just going to run through them and then I'll say a little bit about about each one. The second stage is the stage of positive emotional energy. The third stage is the stage of insight or vision, seeing the truth. The fourth stage is the stage of transformation or spiritual rebirth. And the fifth stage, the stage of spontaneous compassionate activity, which is the result of all of that. In a way, it's the end result. Um, so this path, is, in a way, it's, it's, we're looking at this whole path as a, a, a path to being spontaneously compassionate uh, in our actions. And I thought I'd introduce, say a little bit, use some words um, of Banti's own to <coughs> introduce those five stages in a bit more detail because uh, I thought, well, he, he um, actually came up with this teaching, it sa- sounds like, quite spontaneously on this seminar. It wasn't particularly related to the text of the seminar. Uh, it was something he was mulling over overnight and then he just sort of launched out and uh, talked about this teaching. <coughs> and it's, yes, I just quite enjoyed, it's quite poetic, I thought, some of the ways he was describing the stages. So I thought I would li- leave Bounty's words here and then over the next weeks we'll have time to unpack uh, them much more and um, find ways of relating to them in our day-to-day lives as well. So... 
So this first, so firstly, a little bit about this stage of integration through awareness and mindfulness, um, which is also in the traditional teachings, it's called the stage of preparation. It's, it is where, where we begin and um, preparing ourselves to encounter reality, you could say, in this stage. So Banti says, this really is the stage of mindfulness and awareness. It's the first thing we have to do to develop mindfulness and awareness. This means especially developing self-awareness, which in turn means self-integration. So in a way, mindfulness is also the stage of integration. We bring all our scattered bits together. We integrate ourselves. We overcome conflict with ourselves, disharmony, disharmony with ourselves. We get ourselves functioning as a smoothly working whole. I like that. A smoothly working whole. Um, not a jumble of bits and pieces and fragments of selves all struggling and jostling for supremacy because <laughs> we'll relate to that so you can see that this is quite a big task in itself practicing mindfulness and becoming integrated in this sort of way but this is the first stage it really means giving birth to oneself as an integrated person a self-aware individual yes so that's where we sort of we jump in. Um, well, well Banti says often we don't start at the beginning. Unfortunately, we sort of often go to the end and then we work our way back. But uh, we do have to do this at some point or other before we can really accomplish the next stages of the path. We um, need to sort of address the fact that we're all over the place often and uh, we've got one bit that wants to go here and another bit that wants to go there. We set the alarm in the morning and... Uh, we don't necessarily want to get up exactly when it says that our minds have decided to put it in the next, the next day, do we? We sort of had a little struggle with our, that aspect of our mind the next morning. and um, A different person has woken up to the one that went to bed. <laughs> yeah. So in this stage, we're, we are becoming more whole and more authentic because we're, in a way we're listening to all those aspects of ourselves. And we're, we're sort of... In a way, we're dialoguing with them and drawing them together. We can't force ourselves to come together into a, a, a um, smoothly working whole, can we? It's, it has to be done through, in a way, it want, because, uh, yeah, because those bits, aspects of ourselves want to be united. Want the, when there's a feeling of harmony that wants to be there. So it's, it's quite a task to get to know all those aspects and draw them together. And that's a sort of a concentration of our energies, which then prepares us for the next stage, which is this stage of positive emotional energy, which is also, I think, a stage of inspiration and engagement and, and beauty. Bandy talks about beauty being in this stage. He says, by positive emotion, of course I mean friendliness, compassion, joy, equanimity and faith and devotion. Uh, and in as much as positive emotion is something that moves, not something static, this is also the stage of energy. In this stage, one tries to make oneself as emotionally positive as possible. One overcomes all negative emotions. <coughs> so that's a big job in this stage. One refines one's emotions and develops not just positive but spiritual emotions. We enter the realms of spiritual beauty. This is, all, this is also the stage of meditation because these positive emotions and the energies that you generate carry you through all the levels of, of jhana, that's the sort of higher states of consciousness, which um, sort of blossom as you, as you meditate more deeply. And they, those stages are what you know, prepare us to 
um, help us draw near to reality actually in our experience. He says it's not the stage of meditation necessarily though of sitting in meditation but um, in relation more to be being emotionally positive all the time in and out of meditation. Um, whatever you're doing, sitting, meditating, walking, working, talking, or just being quietly by ourselves. So we're we're, um, through this, we're having sort of, you know, brought ourselves together. We're now beginning to, I guess, um, generate the energy that comes from that united quality of our being. And then we're sort of coming, we're all going in the same direction. And then we're beginning to strengthen and refine and deepen the positivity that comes with that. Because it, well, it isn't easy to see the nature of reality. Um, I think it's T.S. Eliot says something like, mankind cannot take too much reality, doesn't he? Um, that we're, I mean, even in the sense I was thinking, someone might say to you, would you, would you like me to tell you how I see you, what, what I think of your communication? And you might say, oh, well, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Not quite sure if I'm ready for that right now. Um, you know, it's in a way, even even that on that level, it's not easy to take reality. We don't really want to know, well, many of us don't really want to know how we're seen by other people, even, or uh, and sometimes we don't want to know how we see ourselves, um, let alone sort of see through into the nature of impermanence and of the of the ego and um, whatever comes with that. So we sort of we we sort of feel we want to know the truth, and we. We do have a strong intuitive attraction to it, but other sides of us want to hide from it equally strongly. <laughs> it's a sort of funny thing, really. Um, we're just not behind that totally, that purpose. But it's good to see the humorous side of it, I think. <laughs> Otherwise, it would get too grim. <laughs> yeah. So these first two stages, they're all about preparing ourselves and um, making ourselves ready for the journey. They're sort of we're packing the rucksack, really, and we're getting all our provisions together, we're getting a decent gear, good shoes. We've got the compass, the lodestone, hanging from our little string, silver string. Um, we're ready to go. Uh, and we're becoming really quite positive and resilient, so it won't, we won't mind if it rains too much and uh, it, we end up sort of walking through quagmires. We'll, we're ready for it now. So that's the first two stages. And uh, that takes us to the stage, the third stage. Maybe we just glimpse the mountain initially. We st- the stage of vision... Uh, the third stage, the stage of insight and seeing the truth. And Bhante says of this stage, uh, in this stage one sees the truth, not of course regarding the truth as a thing out there to be seen like an ordinary object. One could say that this is the stage of openness to the truth, uh, openness in the direction of ultimate reality, indefinite openness to the ultimate. So it's like being prepared to be open more and more all the time, without holding back. This is also the stage of the death of the old self, the ego, and it's the birth, if you like, of the seed of Buddhahood. Not that the seed wasn't there already, but the seed has now become, as it were, visible. And from that seed, the new being, as it were, the Buddha, will eventually develop. So we're getting a real glimpse at this stage of, uh, of enlightenment, of, of a new being which is free of the ego. So what, the more we can let go of our self-centeredness, the more something fresh and new can begin to shine through us, which is very radical. It's the nature of real transformation, the real golden light of, um, of something very pure, and uh, it's where authenticity begins to really radiate. Um, 
So it's this, the, this is the real turning point of the spiritual life. The more we, we do get, have glimpses of insight in our spiritual lives, and this is a, at a certain point there's a fundamental shift where uh, our insight is really um, got to this very crucial point where we don't fall back from that, and uh, the radiance would just grow from there. The selflessness will go deeper. So the fourth stage, better move on a bit more quickly. I'm so sorry, there won't be a tea break today. <laughs> Have to rethink the tea. No, just a joke. Uh, so the fourth stage is the stage of transformation or spiritual rebirth. And Banti says of this, then comes what we call the stage of transformation. This is when the vision that you have seen, your experience of reality, starts, as it were, descending and transforming every aspect of your being. It's not just in your head, not even in your spiritual being. It pervades all part of your being, all parts of your spiritual body. This is also a stage of meditation, in the sense of dwelling on that glimpse of reality, so as to deepen it and broaden it, and bring it down, as it were, so that it pervades and transforms all the different aspects of one's being. This is where we talk about being trans- we're transforming ourselves in body, speech and mind. It's not just something in the head that we're talking about. It's a thorough transformation of every aspect of our being. And this is um, completely what we're looking for in Buddhism. Um, I remember an uh, experience a few years ago, suddenly realising that that was possible. That we, that, uh, it wasn't just what we were talking about. It really would happen that we can be completely transformed. and We haven't got to hang on to any aspect of our being and... Um, we can just sort of let go and let ourselves just go with that flow of transformative energy. Fifth stage, the stage of compassionate, uh, spontaneous compassionate activity. Uh, this means that having completely transformed ourselves in accordance with our original vision, our vision of reality, we are then in a position really to help others. One could also say that this is also a stage of spontaneity where you don't think what you're going to do to help others, at least not in the ordinary way. You just spontaneously function. You do what needs to be done. There is a sort of overflow, an overflow of your fully enlightened being. So that's really a wonderful thought. It's a stage of a, uh, our, our, um, our insights, our transformation just spontaneously flows out and manifests uh, irrepressibly, really, in our lives. Um, and Bhante talks about enlightenment as being a state of endlessly expanding creativity, that it isn't a full stop, though enlightenment isn't the end of the path. Um, enlightenment, enlightenment is an ever-changing flow of creativity, expansion and, uh, and movement, completely beyond our imaginations, obviously. Uh, yeah, I, I remember feeling very relieved when I heard that for some reason, that enlightenment wasn't the end, because I thought, well, it can't be a real path if it's got an end at enlightenment. It has to be, has to be open. There has to be a flow of energy. It just keeps on expanding. Yeah. So I think I'll uh, end there. Um, and I'd like to end with a poem of, of Bante's, which uh, I feel as though it sort of, it's, again, it's um, quite an imaginative poem. And it, for me, it sort of calls to mind the, the splendour of the spiritual life and the mystery, the great work. It's called Above Me Broods. 
Above me broods a world of mysteries and magnitudes. I see, I hear, more than what strikes the eye or meets the ear. Within me sleep potencies deep, unfathomably deep, which, when awake, the bonds of life, death, time and space will break. Infinity, above me like the blue sky do I see. Below, in me, lies the reflection of infinity. That's him. Thank you.